right, good morning, ladies. Welcome. We're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Um, welcome to Women's Bible Study. I also want to welcome our online people who are listening or watching and getting ready for their online stuff. And also Moon Campus, because they're joining us as well. So welcome to you guys. Um, I'm excited to dig into this word today. I hope that you've had a nice time studying, a good time in your homework. Um, it is a shorter portion of text, so you probably became pretty familiar with this portion of First John. Um, but as we begin to work through this text, we're going to go line by line through it. We're going to begin to see um, that there's a burden that John carries today. He wants to remind his listeners of truth, and he wants to bolster them in that truth as well. Because in Western Asia, where John is writing to these churches, there has been a deviation from the truth in some of these churches. There have actually been people who have left the church to go and follow after false teachers, and this has left some of these congregations reeling. And so we see that John is not going to directly attack these false teachers, but he is going to remind his listeners and assure them that the truth that they once received is truth. And I think his words are also going to ring true for us as well, because we also have a tendency to sometimes see or spot falsehoods in the church at large, in the universal church, and kind of panic but John is going to show us that these deceptions and falsehoods have been around since the very beginning, since the foundations of the church. He's also going to remind us that there is an importance as well to personal examination. That before we go and accuse others of deception and falsehood, before we accuse others of not living in the light, that the first step we need to take is personal reflection. We need to look at ourselves in the mirror. And finally, he's also going to remind us that we serve a God who is light. We serve a God who is light. And through the work of his son and the work of the Holy Spirit, he is always renewing and restoring areas where darkness once was. In our text this week, we looked at 1 John chapter 1 through 1 John chapter 2 verse 2. And as you looked at this text, hopefully you saw that John gives two reasons for why he writes. Two reasons. And we find them in 1 John verse 4. We're told that John is writing so that his joy may be complete. That was the first reason, that his joy may be complete. And then in, in um, chapter 2, verse 1, he tells us that he is writing so that you may not sin. And in your homework, you are asked to consider how do these two statements go together? That John's joy may be complete and that we would not sin. And maybe you came up with something like this, that John's joy as somebody who is an authority over these believers would be complete if they lived lives that were free from the constraints of sin. So we're going to see this kind of idea run all through this section of the text. 
And if you remember, we talked about how this is a circular letter. So it was not written to one person or to one particular church, but it would have been taken around and read to a bunch of different churches in Western Asia. So as a circular letter, we will find that 1 John is not going to open up with a traditional introduction where we hear who the author is and to whom it's being addressed. Instead, we're going to get this prologue right off the bat that is going to remind the listeners of the message that they received when they became believers and followers of Jesus. So that's where we're going to start today. Um, I encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to open up to your copy of the text as well, um, because we're going to go line by line through that. Um, I'm reading today in the ESV, but if you have a different version, sometimes that's helpful just to read along in a different version, and you might find it beneficial. But we're going to take a look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And it says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So we see that the very first phrase that John opens his letter with is that which is from the beginning. And you underline this probably in pink text or pink writing in your text. If you have ever read John's gospel, maybe you hear a little bit of a similarity because he opens his gospel with a similar statement. In the beginning was the word. And so when we look at that which is from the beginning, what is the that or who is the that that John is referring to? It is Jesus, right? We are getting a reminder here of Jesus's deity, that he is eternal and he is transcendent. But we also see here his humanity as well, that Jesus really did come in the flesh. John appeals to our senses as he tells us that he heard him, he saw him, he touched Jesus. He is telling us that the incarnation is important. And notice that the choice of pronoun that John makes here as he writes, he's not saying I, he says we, us, are. And that actually occurs 11 times in that opening statement. He is making an emphasis on this idea. So who is the we that John is speaking about? Who did John experience Jesus with? It was the 12 disciples, right? These were his brothers. These were the people that he, were, he served alongside as he saw and heard and touched Jesus. And remember that John is writing now as one of the final disciples, one of the final ones left. And he knows that he has to pass along this information that he experienced, the stuff that he heard and saw, to a generation of people who have not heard, who have not seen, and who have not touched. And we see here in verse, number two, in verse 2 
that he says this word two times. We are told that the life of Jesus that John speaks of was made manifest to us. You see that word manifest twice. And you were actually asked to look up what does manifest mean. I told you that you would be using a dictionary an awful lot, and you had had to this first section for sure. Well, my dictionary gave me this definition, that manifest is something that is made obvious. It's made a reality. So we get this idea that Jesus, who is eternal, who is transcendent, was made obvious to John and now to us in his incarnation. That there is a reality about who Jesus is that we are better able to understand because he took on human flesh. I actually want to have us look at the Gospel of John a little bit today as well. So if you have your Bible out, if you would turn to John chapter 20, we're going to look together at John's account of the resurrection, at what John experienced when he saw the empty tomb. And so if you would turn to John 20, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. So John says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And who is that? John. Yeah. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, who is John, and they were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that he says that, like kind of inserts that, like, hey, I was faster, just so you know. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came in following him. He went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there. I'm going to pause for a minute. You probably heard me emphasize that word saw that is used there twice. This Greek word that is used here for saw means to notice. Okay, so essentially John is saying here, we noticed these linen cloths. We saw them with our eyes. Now let's look at the final verse. John continues and says, Then the other disciple, who is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Now this saw is a different Greek word. This word means to believe. And essentially what John is saying here is he comprehended truth. He's not just looking and visually seeing and noticing these cloths lying there. He is comprehending the truth about what they mean. The truth was made manifest to him. It was made obvious And that is the word that is used here in verse 2 when John says that we have seen it. He's not just saying, I saw Jesus with my eyes or I noticed him. He's saying, I have comprehended the truth about who Jesus is. It has been made a reality to me. It is obvious. And now these things that have been made obvious to these original 11 disciples... John is now proclaiming to his listeners as well. And again, he's not just talking about noticing something. He's talking about understanding and comprehending the reality of who Jesus Christ was. If you remember 
last week, we talked about the idea of Gnosticism and how this was a belief that was rapidly gaining uh, traction during this time, especially in the area of Western Asia where John would have been writing. And we said that the Gnostics had this belief that there were only a select few who could get and understand spiritual matters, that, that you were truly special and had to approach God in a special way if you wanted knowledge imparted to you. But John is contradicting that here because he's saying that he is proclaiming the truth to everyone. He's saying there's not just a special few to whom this truth can be imparted. This truth that I'm telling you, this, this idea of who Jesus was can be understood by anybody. And anyone can see and believe. And then in verse 3, he tells us why he proclaims this truth. He says he proclaims this truth so that you can have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we get this other comment here to kind of fend off the teaching of Gnosticism. If you remember, the Gnostics believed and held very, very dearly the idea of individualism. But John is saying, no, the mark of a true believer, the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ is somebody who is in fellowship with other believers. John writes as somebody who enjoyed fellowship with the other disciples and fellowship with Jesus. And now he wants to pass on that fellowship to the next generation of believers. And notice that as John writes, he's giving us two examples of fellowship. He's saying you can have fellowship with other believers, like a horizontal fellowship, but you also then can have fellowship with your heavenly father, a vertical fellowship. And he's reminding us as well that our fellowship with God, that vertical fellowship, is affected by our ability to have fellowship with those around us. That when we are living in disunity with other believers, when we are not walking in the light and allowing other believers to be in our lives, that our fellowship with God is affected by that. And also notice who he says is the source of our fellowship, that it is through Jesus that we receive this fellowship. We receive fellowship with God through Jesus because we are able to approach his throne confidently. And we, we receive fellowship with other believers because when we believe in Jesus, we are adopted into his family that we call the church. And so this fellowship is a gift that we receive because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we see this modeled for us in the book of Acts, which would have been written before this book of John. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And so this is the foundational church. This is the beginning of the church. And we see that already, one generation removed from this original church, they are struggling to stay in fellowship with one another. They are leaning towards the bend of being individuals and wanting individuality. How much more? Do we need this reminder today? Several generations removed that the idea of fellowship is so important. And it is because of fellowship that John has experienced with other believers that he writes in verse 4 that we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The fullness of our joy as believers does not just hinge on our personal relationship with God. We also receive joy from being in fellowship with other believers. God uses those around us to increase our joy, to increase our knowledge of who he is. We need the church to be able to experience the fullness of joy that God brings. So now John moves on from his introduction, which is in verses 1 through 4, and as he does so, he has a main goal here. And unlike some other letters that we sometimes read where it's very clear that the author is trying to correct behavior, that's not really what John is doing. He's not trying to correct the behavior of the church. He's trying to encourage them or reinforce that the lifestyle and belief that they are currently living is correct, that they need to hold on to the truth that they already know. So let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So during this time when John is writing, these Christians would have been surrounded by pagan nations. And a lot of these pagan religions would have had gods or goddesses that were associated with light. And I love the way, the way that John words this. He says, God is is light. He doesn't represent life. He's not a representative for the sun. He is light. He is the true source of light. And John also probably speaks this knowing that there is a Gnostic belief going on that light and darkness are these competing and equal forces. And so as John writes this, he is saying that God is the source of all light. And he uses this double negative here, if you notice that. He's saying, in him, there is no darkness at all. So we get it emphasized twice. He's emphasizing this idea that in God, there is not even the slightest hint of darkness. So I want to think of this idea of light for just a moment. Light is a benefit to us as believers. And we see this in many places in the Bible. God is often used and described as a light. We saw that if you studied Exodus with us, you saw this imagery of light all through Exodus. And sometimes God even represents himself as fire, as light to his people. In Psalm 119, we hear this saying that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we see that light can illuminate for us where we should go, that it can give us direction. My kids would tell you that light also dispels darkness because every single night at bedtime they beg me, turn on the lamp, right? Light dispels darkness. It drives it away. If you also think about light, we know that light also allows for growth. I um, have a lot of plants in my house that I try to grow. 
very unsuccessfully normally. Um, and I have a few that are successful, but I have often a kind of a rotation of plants that slowly die over time, and then I run to Home Depot and buy more plants and replace them. So I look like I'm a really good plant lady. Um, so depending on when you come in my house, you might get a false, de false um, depiction of how good I am at growing plants. But I have some plants in particular that I tend to put on my windowsill. I have a really large window in my living room that lets in beautiful light. But I've noticed a little bit of a pattern about growing indoor plants here in western Pennsylvania. And that's that my plants look really, really beautiful from the spring through early fall, and then they slowly wither and die. Why? Because my plants aren't getting light. There's not enough light coming through that window. They aren't getting enough natural light because we live in an area that is gloomy and dark for parts of the year. And so I have now realized that it may not be totally my fault, but I can actually blame this climate and area instead. Light allows for growth. If we want to grow in our faith, we need to seek the light because he is light. We need to try to walk in a way in which we are exposing our lives to others. We need to try to walk in a way where we are seeking to model what Jesus modeled for us. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. John says, if we, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is, un he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John moves now to three conditional claims that people can make that are dishonest. And each one of them begins with the phrase, if we say. So we get three of them here. And we see the first in verse 6. And this first, this first phrase is, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. Essentially, John is saying here that if we claim to have a relationship with the Father, if we claim to be in fellowship with him, but we continue in, in, in habitual, unrepentant sin, then we're lying. We lie because we're not truthful about the state of our relationship with our Father. We lie because there is a brokenness there if we are continuing in unrepentant sin. And we're also guilty of not practicing the truth that we know to be true. Then John offers us the converse way of acting, that if we walk in light as he or God is the light, that we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So we get this picture here that walking in light or darkness not only affects our fellowship with God, but it also affects the way that we live with one another. It affects our ability to be in fellowship with one another. And isn't this a number one reason why we tend to shy away from community? 
why we tend to shy away from wanting to live closely with other believers. Because if I am walking in darkness, why would I want to get involved in a community that is going to ask me to be honest about the way that I'm living? Why would I want to be with somebody who's going to poke into my stuff and try to shed light into my life? And before we begin to think that not being honest about the state of our heart is only an issue for these first century Christians, I want to look and see where we see this attitude in other places in the Bible. This is the attitude that we see in Adam when God comes to him about his sin and Adam instantly shifts blame to Eve. It's the attitude that we see in Cain when God asks him, where is your brother? And Cain pretends to have no idea what has happened to him. This is the attitude of Aaron when Aaron has just led the Israelites into building the golden calf and God and Moses comes to him and Aaron says, I don't know what happened. It just kind of happened. It stumbled. I, I don't know what, what, how this occurred, right? This is, can be our attitude as well. Anytime we shift the blame and do not take responsibility for our sins, anytime our lives don't accurately reflect God, and we don't confess and repent that, we are not walking in the light. In verse 8, we find our second conditional claim here. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So another way to reword this is that if we were to say that we have stopped sinning or we have ceased sinning, so to say that we no longer sin is a deception to ourselves. John is taking a stab here at the idea of legalism. He is saying that if you look at your life and you say, look at my good works, look at my righteousness, I am a better follower of Jesus than whomever, that we are deceiving ourselves when we say that. Because John reminds us that in light of who God is, that every single one of us falls short. We're going to come back to verse 9 in a moment, because um, I want to first look at verse 10, where we find our final claim. John says here, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the difference between this claim and the one we just heard, the former one in verse 8, is that this one is claiming that we have never sinned, right? That there has never been sin in us. So when you did your homework, you were asked to find biblical support as to why this claim is a lie. And there's all different types of support you could have come up with, but maybe you came up with Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or maybe Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. There's lots of places in the Bible where we see God very clearly say that we are not righteous on our own, that we are sinners. And where do we see this idea today? I think um, we see this in the idea of moral relativism. And this is very prominent in our culture right now, that, that my truth is my truth. And that I can decide for myself what is right or wrong. And as long as I'm living by my truth, you can't tell me that it's wrong. Have you seen that today in our culture? John reminds us that in contradicting God's word, we are calling him a liar. Let's look back together at verse 9. We have this beautiful statement inserted here. And this might be one that you know or maybe memorized as a kid 
It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in contrast to these three untruthful claims, these three claims that were made, we see that truth-telling can be found in confession. That if we want to live in the light, that we have to confess and be honest about our lives. And when we think about the forgiveness of sins, we see that God is two things here, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins. He is faithful and he is just. I think it's easy for us to understand how God is faithful to commit to forgive our sins. We see his word in the Bible saying that he will forgive our sins, so he is faithful to uphold his word. But the idea of him being just might be a little bit more confusing. So how is God just to forgive our sins? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, that action absorbed the penalty or the punishment of sin for all. Because Jesus took on the punishment for my sin, it would be unjust for God then to take that punishment and lay it on me as well. Because it's already been paid. So it is, it is just for God to forgive us of our sins. Now continuing on in chapter 2, verse 1, John now begins to personally address his listeners. He begins in chapter 2 saying, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We see here the heart of John. He addresses these churches like a father. He knows that he is part of the family of God. And in that order of the family, he sees himself as having authority over these churches. And as a father, he communicates to them his heart's desire that they would not sin. Right? Isn't that what we long for for our children? For those of you who are moms, that is what drives us often is that our children would not sin. We want to see them walk righteously. And yet John, knowing that they will sin, also reminds them and reminds us of the hope that we have. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And we have here two words, two other words that you were asked to look up in your homework, advocate and propitiation. So an advocate, in my, defin in my dictionary, said that it is one who pleads the cause of another, one who pleads the cause of another. And so we saw in our homework that Jesus is our advocate. I saw a quote um, in a book that I was reading that said that Jesus's intercession for us can be looked at as the continual application of his death to our salvation. I love that. I'm going to say that one more time. Jesus's intercession can be looked at as the continual application of his death for our salvation. So Jesus is our advocate. He is continually reminding the Father of his death, that this debt is paid. And you also looked up the word propitiation. 
and you probably got a lot of different definitions, but for me, the word that fit the best was the word appeasement. Jesus is the appeasement for our sins, and not just for our personal sins, but it is an appeasement that is available for the sins of the entire world. Now, I want you to think a little bit about a courtroom. There's lots of courtroom dramas on TV right now. Maybe you have a favorite. Um, But when we think about a courtroom, when an advocate is called to come and give testimony to acquit somebody of a crime, okay, when a witness is called up, if they are seeking to, to acquit somebody of a crime, what is it that they're declaring on another person? They're declaring their innocence, right? They're giving a story or they're giving a testimony or they're giving some piece of evidence that is seeking to show that this person is innocent. But that's not the scene that we have being played out for here when we talk about Jesus being our advocate. Because Jesus is not pleading our innocence. He is saying no. He acknowledges our guilt, but instead he presents himself as a sacrifice so that we can be acquitted. God is faithful to forgive our sins because of the work of his son. And he is just to not punish us for our sins because the cost of that has already been paid. He is faithful and he is just. So I have recently just returned from Disney World. A lot of you asked me about that in my trip. Um, I went with my four girls and my mom, God bless her. Um, And we had kind of a single mission in mind when we got to Disney. Um, My girls are nine, seven, six, and almost four. And so the fourth, the most important thing on the mind of especially the younger ones was Disney princesses, right? Disney princesses. And my my third daughter, Adelaide, had actually one princess in mind that she just had to see. It was Princess Elena. If you haven't heard of her, she's a new princess. You're not, like, totally out of the loop. Um, But Princess Elena was the one that she just had to meet. And so when we got to Disney World that very first day, it was like, all right, Princess Elena, that is our mission today. we got to find her. And within the first hour or so, we were lucky enough to be able to find Elena. And so we got in this long line, and we're standing in line to go meet this princess. And I can instantly see Addie start to shrink back. And she's, like, hiding her head in my stomach and acting super shy. And I thought, like, man, she's not even going to interact with this princess. This is, like, a total waste of time. But we get up there, and I kind of push her forward. And she has her little autograph book. And her sisters are cheering her along, going, go, Addie, go meet her. Come on, go see her. So Addie walks up and kind of hides her face and shyly hands over her book. And Princess Elena signs it. And then this princess begins to interact with my daughter. And if you've ever been to Disney World or you know anything about Disney, you know that these characters take on the persona of whomever they're representing. And so as Elena talks to Addie, she's talking and she's, she's starting to talk about things that happen in her show like it's real life. And at first, Addie's not even paying attention to her. She's completely detached. And then all of a sudden, Elena says to Addie, you know, I forgot my scepter back at my palace today. I really wish I had it with me. And Addie instantly lit up. And she looked at her and she said, I have a scepter too. And my mom wouldn't let me bring it on the plane. You could see a change in Addie in that moment. All of a sudden, Elena became real to her. 
She wasn't just this character that was dressed up. This was Elena. And as they parted, Elena said to Addie, now that you have met me, you can be part of my kingdom as well. And you have a scepter that can bring you power too. And Addie was all excited and lit up. And what was the first thing that kid did when we got home? She ran downstairs and got that scepter and started playing with it like she had power. Like she was actually changing things with it. And I noticed that as we watched Elena for the first time after we got home, that Addie watched with a different perspective. And she said at one point as we were watching her, hey, mom, I know her. (laughs) As John opens up this letter, this is essentially what he's saying. He's saying, this Jesus, I know him. I have walked with him. I have touched him. I have heard directly from him. This truth of Jesus and who he was was made obvious to John. This transfer of power from Jesus to John is kind of like what I saw between Elena and my daughter in a much more real way, right? This transfer of power that happened, John's belief that was given to him from Jesus is now giving John the power to bear witness about who Jesus is to others. And as John speaks these words of testimony, as he says who Jesus was and who he experienced Jesus to be, we get that deposit as well. We are benefiting from what John received from the Lord. And because John and these other disciples bear witness, we can know God too. We get an idea of who Jesus was. And the truth that they tell can become a reality to us. Not just things that we see with our eyes. They're not just words that we read. They become obvious to us as we receive them as well. And then we, become, be able, we are able to bear witness as well ourselves. It is a continual transfer of power. And how do we bear witness about who Jesus is? We bear witness when we walk in the light, as God is light. We bear witness when we are in fellowship and unity with one another. We bear witness when we confess our sins to God and to others. We bear witness when we testify about the grace that we have received from our advocate, Jesus. I often was thinking as I read and studied this week, if John had any idea as he penned these words, knowing that his life was coming to an end, and he was thinking about the fate of the church and this next generation and how he had to help them understand who this Jesus was, I wonder if he had any idea that thousands of years later we would still be drawing on them today. Our witness matters, not just now, not just for our generation, but for the future of the church. I want to close today with John's opening lines from a different book that he wrote, um, Revelation. So I want to read to you Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8. And John says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants that things must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We bear witness about these things that have been made manifest or obvious to us because the end is near. We have the privilege of being able to partner with Jesus, with other believers, with John, as we proclaim the truth. And as we live our lives speaking truth and walking in light, we represent the one who is light. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then you guys are going to move into your small group time. So if you would bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you, Lord, for these words um, that you revealed and wrote through your servant, John. Um, Lord, we thank you for the truth of what they were to the original audience to whom John was writing, but we also thank you for the way that your scripture is alive and active and also speaks truth to us as well. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of what it looks like to walk in line with you, that it looks like living in community, that it looks like confessing sin. Um, And Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our own lives as John asks his churches to do, that we would look at how our lives represent you, that we would consider whether or not we are walking fully in the light. Lord, I just pray over this time in small group together. I pray that these ladies would be encouraged by the time that they spend to one another with one another. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to seek understanding from one another, that the words that they share and the way that they look through their homework and talk about the things that they learned this week would be encouraging to them. And Lord, I pray that as we ponder these words and we think over your scripture, that you would help us to understand truths about who you are. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, ladies.